Hello, and welcome to the third episode of our podcast series, AGG Talks, Antitrust and White Collar Crime Roundup, in which we cover the legal facts surrounding recent cases, trends, and hot topics related to antitrust and white collar crime with some of the foremost legal analysts in the country. My name is Jeff Jakubowicz. I am a trial attorney with Arnell Golden Gregory, and I chair the firm's antitrust group. I have recently appeared on MSNBC and CNN regarding white-collar criminal issues related to the Donald Trump indictments. I'm joined by Cynthia Alksley, a career federal prosecutor, MSNBC legal analyst, and expert in criminal law, grand jury, and police investigations, and confrontational interviewing techniques. Cynthia has handled cases involving weeks of grand jury investigations and live testimony, leading to dozens of indictments. She has a deep understanding of DOJ and state investigative policies, grand jury protocols, and FBI practices and procedures. She's here with me today to analyze the recent indictment of former President Donald Trump concerning the mishandling of records at Mar-a-Lago. Cynthia and I will provide an overview of the indictment, as well as talk about the seriousness of the charges and where we see related investigations going. Cynthia, thanks so much for joining me. Let's get started. Do you think the um, Mar-a-Lago indictment will be the last indictment for Donald Trump? No, I think we'll see two indictments this summer. I think we'll see the Fannie Willis indictment. She's been hinting about it for some time, as we all know, saying uh, decisions were imminent. And she's impaneled a grand jury to get serious about that. I think we'll see an indictment from her if all the tea leaves are correct, and I think they probably are, she's at the point where she's telling her supervising judges to be careful about, you know, what's happening in the courthouse at certain times because things are going to be happening. So there's a lot of red flags. She's going to have an indictment. And then I think there will be an indictment in the January 6th case as well uh, at some point this summer. Do you think um, Fannie Willis and Jack Smith are coordinating timing? I do not. And part of that is because prosecutors are, I mean, I don't want to say arrogant, but prosecutors want to run their own case and they don't want to cooperate with other people. They want to run their case on their own timetable. And the Department of Justice certainly doesn't like to defer to state prosecutors. And Fannie Willis is a tough cookie and she doesn't want to defer to the feds. So no, I do not think they're cooperating about timing. And what is Fannie Willis doing now? Is she reading testimony into uh, the new grand jurors uh, from the prior grand jury? Well, that's an option. I mean, one of the things that's interesting that I don't think people understand is, so there was an investigative grand jury that came up with whatever conclusions it came up with. It's not completely clear, even though there have been some leaks. And then Fannie Willis has to take the information that the investigative grand jury found and turn it into a prosecutorial grand jury to make the decision. She has two choices. She can put witnesses back in the grand jury if she thinks it's important for the grand jury to hear from witnesses live, or if she thinks it's important to even further nail down witnesses and get their testimony recorded. It can be a very useful tool with a, in a confrontational situation, as you know, to get witnesses' testimony again and again and again and get it recorded uh, in the grand jury. She may choose to do that, or hearsay is admissible in the grand jury. So if she thinks she's got a clean record and she likes what she's got, she can get a court reporter, an FBI agent to come in and summarize or read the testimony from the prior grand jury. She's got a lot of options, and we do not know what she's doing. And uh, let's turn back to the Mar-a-Lago indictment. Can you describe it for our audience? 
Yes. I mean, it's a surprising indictment to me because of the level of detail. It's a speaking indictment, which means it's really telling a story. And it's very readable for lawyers and particularly non-lawyers. Law students should all read it. The first almost 30 pages really are telling the story. They're the introduction. And Jack Smith or the members of the grand jury describe in detail about how uh, when Donald Trump left the White House, the documents were taken and they were not returned when they tried multiple times to get them and that they were very important documents to the national defense um, of the United States, not only of our defense and our weapons capabilities, but other nuclear secrets of other nations and our nation and also our planning of defense. So it's pretty shocking if when you read the document, how serious the documents that were taken were to the defense of the United States. So it goes over that and it goes over in a lot of detail, in fact, a surprising amount of detail about what it is that the former president did specifically on obstruction. He asked his lawyer to lie to the FBI and to the members of the grand jury. And the witness for that is the lawyer. So it's not a situation where you get often, well, we have witnesses that so-and-so lied and -and so-and-so tried to do this. And it's their external witnesses coming in with different ways they figured that out. This is actually Donald Trump's lawyer went in the grand jury and said, the former president suggested that I lie to the FBI. The former president suggested that I, uh, you know, kind of hinted that I throw away documents. That's pretty important evidence. And there's more evidence specifically about Trump than I expected. And that is the way the he directed his aide Nauta to move boxes, the, the way they moved boxes when the lawyer refused to play ball, the way they did move boxes, how many boxes were moved, exactly what time of day the boxes were moved, and how he got the false certification to the Department of Justice about whether or not all the documents had been returned. The detail in these first 27, 30 pages is pretty shocking that they have, not only on on the conspiracy, not only on the lower level members of the conspiracy, but actually on the former president. So the bulk of the pages are explaining and telling the story of the conspiracy. And then we go through the counts. Hold on one second, Cynthia. Let me just ask you, um, you mentioned his attorney testified, and they have information in the indictment about his attorney's testimony. And from a legal perspective, that's fairly unusual, isn't it? It's shocking, actually. As you know, in our profession, the attorney-client relationship is about as sacrosanct as any relationship. But you have an attorney-client relationship with your lawyer, for example. Here's the example I like to give. You can tell your lawyer in a murder case, you can say, I've been charged with murder. And I say, I killed my husband and I buried him in the backyard. And that is forever sacrosanct if I tell you that, Jeff. But if I say to you, I killed my husband, where should I bury the body? Will you help me? And you give me a suggestion, check out the backyard. Okay, now it's over. Now there's no attorney-client relationship because it's in furtherance of a conspiracy. So what happened in this case was the court said there was no attorney-client relationship because of the the criminal violation. This was Judge Howell in D.C. who- That's right. Yes, who who was um, supervising the grand jury, Judge Howell did. And wouldn't um, Donald Trump's lawyers 
raise this issue again with the new judge in Florida, Judge Cannon. I'm sure the they will. Favorable to him. I'm sure they will. I don't think there's any question that will be one of their defenses. I don't think it will win, but it will be an interesting, it will be a battle. And I think ultimately the Department of Justice will win it. And if Judge Cannon does reverse Judge Howell, is that something the DOJ can take up to the Court of Appeals? Yes. And they will. On an interlocutory basis? I believe so, yes. So, which would mean for our audience that they would not have to wait for a trial to occur, but they would be able to appeal that immediately. Right. But it also is delay. Right. So part of I mean, I'm sure you want to get to defenses, but one of the defenses here is delay. Um, and that's not just what former president does. It's what all criminal defense attorneys do. In fact, the general saying in criminal defense attorneys is a dead case is as good as a win. I mean, as long as you can put it off, your client is out of jail and things are going well. And that's particularly true if your client is running for president, because if Donald Trump were to win the presidency, which he may do, then he could shut this investigation down. He could dismiss this indictment. So he could shut it down. He could order his attorney general to shut it down. Absolutely. Well, what about a pardon? Do you think he could self-pardon himself? He wouldn't need to. Were he president and this was still going, it would just, he could just dismiss it. Right. I mean, I think the self-pardon is a legal issue, but I don't, but it's not a legal issue in whether or not he can dismiss the case. He could pardon Nauda. He could self-pardon himself to cover himself. But the best thing to do is just dismiss the whole thing. Well, presumably that's what Nauda is is looking to do also, because um, the indictment appears pretty strong against him as well. And um, his defense will likely be delay. And that's what he's doing already, isn't he? Right. Uh, I think there's a lot of gamesmanship going on there. For example, we're about to have a big hearing on the scheduling on the 18th. And Nauda has put off, you know, I can't find a lawyer. I can't get it. I can't get arraigned. I can't this. I can't that. Now we're finally going to have a scheduling conference. But the last I heard, his lawyer still hasn't even filed the documents to get the security clearance. So that's going to put off how long it's going to take to get the security issues resolved. So the more Nauda can, you know, kind of edge away at the time and clip chip away and chip away and keep pushing this can down the road, the better it is for both of them. And the court calendar is really within the discretion of a judge. Isn't that right? Absolutely. I mean, I just find it unbelievable that any appellate court is going to start telling her, telling Judge Cannon how she does her scheduling orders. I mean, that's just not that's not what they're in the business of doing. I mean, she's in charge of her calendar. It's a big power that she has. And uh, the Department of Justice knows it. And can Judge Cannon turn around if there's too much delay on... Um certain issues, turn around and say, I'm going to appoint a a federal public defender who has a a security clearance. Let's move forward. I honestly don't know, but I think that's unlikely. I mean, at some point they will move forward. I think she can force them to get the security clearance stuff done. And that seems more likely to me. Right. And um, you mentioned the different charges. Is one of the charges espionage here? Well, the, the charge, the bulk charge, the 31 counts is the willful retention of national defense information. And that comes from the Espionage Act. But it's not really an espionage charge. That's just where the willful retention of national defense information charge is housed in the criminal law. So I don't think it's fair. You know, it's hyperbole to say the president's been charged with espionage. That's not really because the 
as the, you know, the, in the public consciousness, that means spying. That's not what he's charged with. He's charged with the retention of national defense information, the disclosure of which would cause serious harm to national security. And when asked, he refused to return it. That's what the charge is. Uh, and there's 31 of those charges. Now, interestingly, when um, the FBI went into Mar-a-Lago, they got 103 classified documents, but he's only charged now with 31 of them. And that's kind of an interesting question why that is. What we know is that these 31 documents, which are worth reading if you look at page 28 to 33, it's just like a grid. It's kind of devastating just to read it, to think, oh my God, this was what was sitting on you know, the stage of Mar-a-Lago and you could get to it if you had a party there or it was near the pool and there were many entrances. I mean, this, this was not, these were not documents that were secured in any way, shape or form. Um, but if you look at those, you can also realize, you know, how serious they were, but the ones that aren't in there, they were probably even more serious, right? Because all of the documents that are in this indictment are cleared, not only the paperwork of the Department of Justice, so we want to use this one, we want to use that one, but the, the, the CIA and the Defense Department have also looked at these documents and said, okay, well, we think it's safe to use these documents. Um, and we think it's not safe to use the other's documents. So um, it's, you know, it's sobering to look at the documents that are there and they begin on page 28. And I would, I would recommend that as reading. And um, Cynthia, this is a tough question, but based on your experience and your review of the cases, uh, generally for these types of offenses, people go to jail. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. Uh, there's an interesting, um, uh, so jail time is determined in the federal system by the sentencing guidelines, as we know. Right. The sentencing guidelines are, they're not mandatory, but they are the framework that are used by all federal judges. If you work up the sentencing guidelines and just security did that um, so that we can look at it, if you work up the sentencing guidelines on the willful retention of documents and all of these and the conspiracy and everything, um, you get almost um, you get almost 17 and a half years because you get upward departures in the sentencing guidelines. And I, I don't I don't know how I guess many of the people who see this are lawyers, so they understand it. But maybe maybe some of them don't. The sentencing guidelines have a basic you know, framework, like, okay, if you commit this crime, you get X points. And then you get more points if you were the leadership in this crime. You get more points if you abuse the public trust. You get more points if the documents that you are retaining are top secret. You get more points if there's obstruction. So it, since all of that is true in this case, as long as the government proves that, which I presume they're going to, but, you know, anything can happen. But assuming they prove what they've charged in the indictment, the sentencing guideline workup is is a uh, gets him to the level thirty seven or seventeen and a half years to twenty two years. So, other people, if they were not the president of the United States, would have serious jail time for this conduct. How they're going to work that out with the Secret Service? How how we work it out? What Judge Cannon does because she seems to be 
of the view that because he's an ex-president, he's in a special category, how she handles that. But that would be a rather large departure going from a, a, a level 37 at 17 and a half years to a no jail time. I, I would guess if they prove these charges, he will go to jail. And, you know, in terms of chances of him being convicted, obviously, uh, the wild card here is the cases in Fort Pierce and and you don't know what the jury panel is going to look like. And so all you need is one person to hang up a jury and you have a, a hung jury and then the government has to retry a case. Um, and sometimes these never lead to convictions. So uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, isn't there, Cynthia? Yeah, I think there is a lot of uncertainty. And one thing that's also uncertain is the Fort Pierce aspect. I mean, where exactly the trial goes, it's my understanding in that district that the chief judge will have some input in that because because of the top secret status and a skiff and how to handle all the documents and things. Um, so it is very possible that even though she is going to do her hearings in Fort Pierce, it ends up somewhere else. That could mean, I mean, there's just a lot of unknowns, right? And I, I do think it makes a big difference. As a person who lives in Florida, the Fort Pierce area, I can tell you, it was about as red as it gets. Um, but if it ends up in Miami, two things could be true. They could be busing jurors down from Fort Pierce, or they could be taking a big, a larger swath, jurors from a larger swath of counties. And it, it's just, it's too early in the process to know where it's going to be. But I will say this. I know everybody says, oh, it's in Fort Pierce. That's Okeechobee, blah, blah, blah. You know, you'll, for sure, someone will. Uh, hang it up. That's not my experience with juries. I, 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 you know, I don't have a lot of faith in a lot of things. I've kind of gotten jaded over the years, but juries have, have, you know, continue to give me hope. I mean, they take these oaths seriously. And I don't think it's fair to say those people won't be patriotic when they see what's happened with these documents and what a threat it is to our country. So I, I don't, if it's in Fort Pierce, I'm, I mean, I'm okay with it because I think jurors take it, take things seriously. And when the judge, you know, that always says, leave your politics at the door and let's evaluate the evidence. I, I, I know I mean, maybe it's Pollyannish, but I, I trust jurors. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a good way to conclude. And on a positive note, Cynthia, our time is up. And I'd like to just thank you for joining me today and joining our law firm today. Uh, listeners, we hope that you found this discussion to be informative. If you have any questions or would like to submit your feedback for topics in the future, feel free to reach out to me, Jeff Jacobovitz. You can find my contact information on agg.com. And future podcast episodes will be distributed through our AGG website and social media pages. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you.